HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is sponsored by Cane Vineyard and Winery. For more information, go to cane5.com. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Thank you to Easy today. Going to sip some wine with Joe Campanelle, um, who is, I don't know, are you the youngest Master Psalm in the country right now? Uh, wow, I wish I, I wish that were true. I'm not even a Master Psalm. In- <laughs> S- soon to be. I, I can feel it. I'm projecting this on you. Thank you. I, I'll, I'll take that uh, untrue, yeah. unwarranted projection. <laughs> well... You were a wine wonder kid. I mean, how old are you? Twenty-seven years old. Yeah, I just turned twenty-eight. Um, but when I when I got hired for my first real sommelier job, I, I just turned uh, twenty-three, and I was working at Babo at the time. Fantastic. I mean, you talk about wines maturing and people with palates that have tasted things for you know almost a century, decades upon decades. How, in such a short period of time, have you progressed to where you are, and how have you developed your palate? I mean, you're you're a boy from Queens, right? That's right. I grew up in Queens, and uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Queens is is not the uh, land of wine culture. Like there, there aren't like a ton. I didn't have a group of, of like wine tasters. Uh, All the vineyards in Flushing, you know. Yeah, it's not it's not wine country, despite popular opinion. Um, but no, I re- I got into wine um, freshman year at college. Um, I had uh, I'd gone by a, a local wine store, Union Square Wines, and there was a sign outside that said, "Come in." free wine tasting and as, as a freshman in college I thought that sounded not too bad yeah what age were you 18 uh, eight, 18 yeah uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is this is a, a trick for all you college freshmen out there that are looking to drink yeah. legally um, they don't often check IDs at wine tasting if you just pretend like you're supposed to be there I think I mean if you're yeah then then they, they don't really check. Uh, then I, I'd be I'd started going to those free tastings so often that by by my sophomore year I, I was such a regular. They invited me to their uh, to their Christmas party, um, and I, I talk. With, it's still the same wine director there, and I and I talk with them all the time. And 
and and uh, I'm like, you know, I was I was underage at that time. <laughs> it's like, oh, I I had an idea, but uh, <laughs> you're cool, so it's, yeah. so it was all right. Do you uh, remember, do you remember those first wines you started tasting with them that were those gateway you know beverages? You know, I don't remember some of the first wines, but what I do remember is going to the tastings, seeing people just really enjoying themselves, talking to winemakers, talking to distributors, and just thinking, man, this is a really fun, cool scene. And I really like this, and I want to I want to be part of this. There's something about it that, that's just really resonating with me. Yeah, so Queens, not, not this uh, bountiful place of grapes. Um, there must have been times in your life. What did you grow up eating, drinking? What were your first sips of wine? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, there was no wine in the house growing up. I grew up with just me and my mom, um, so uh, an only child of a, of a single mom. So times where you know we, we counted we counted every dollar, and, and there wasn't a lot of leftover. But um, from an early age, mom did did really concentrate on the importance of eating something that's good and um, how great it is to be able to go out and enjoy a meal out. So one, once a week. Uh, that's all we could do then. But once a week, we would go in and have a meal out. And I just remember how, how nice it was to, to sit there and, and enjoy the time together and, and uh, be taken care of. And, uh, and how important, how much we, we both paid attention to, to flavors even at that early age. And, you know, she's really into perfume. <laughs> and we would always smell perfume. Um, yeah, yeah, as a little boy, smelling perfume. But... Uh, <laughs> miracle i'm so masculine now uh but uh so i i remember like flavors and smells you know paying attention to that from an early age but what really 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 i think was important for me developing uh which is what i think you're, you're asking about I, my my palate um is uh, coming to New York, living in the city. I went to NYU and going to farmers markets, and I would go to farmers markets all the time, and just smelling all these different herbs, smelling fruits, smelling vegetables, and paying attention to them. I really loved the smell and the the sensory experience of of smelling everything. Um, and then I was able to when I when I tasted those in wines, tasted those same flavors in wines, being able to articulate because I remembered what something really specific would smell like that maybe I had never been exper- exposed to earlier in my life. Yeah. I mean it is all about recall. Um, do you remember that first recall where you sniffed a wine and you're like, "Oh, I know exactly what that scent is. That's strawberries. That's, you know, uh, lovage. That's this." Yeah, I, I remember being at a, a restaurant with uh, God, I, this isn't like romantic at all. But I remember being <laughs> at a restaurant with friends and saying that a wine smelled like tobacco. And I, mom was a smoker, and I hated that uh, growing up. But uh, and the, the sommelier said, "Oh, that's a very astute observation." <laughs> and like being like, "Oh my God, this is the greatest thing yeah. ever! I made an astute observation." <laughs> and so uh, I, I kind of love that being able to pick out something that someone else recognizes uh, as being a valid <laughs> tasting note. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I mean, because it's intimidating. Um, wine, you not only have to be able to swirl the glass and not spill it all over yourself, but you have to have some kind of language. And developing that language is such a kind of, I think, thing that people are apprehensive about. You are so, so right. And what, what I always tell people is that it everyone will drink much better wine and make my job a lot easier, but it's, it's all about everyone else. But if you, you drink much better wine, if you can figure out just a couple of things to communicate, um, some really, really simple steps to communicate that will help you drink better wine. What, co- what, kind, what color wine do you want? Do you want white, red, rosé, or sparkling? 
Do you want light-bodied, full-bodied, or medium-bodied? So that's like skim milk, 2%, or heavy cream, right? Um, do you want it to be fruit-forward or earthy? And then how much do you want to pay? So if you can say something as simple as, I want a full-bodied, fruit-forward red wine for $20, you can... You'll drink much better wine if yeah. you start, if you can figure out that that simple, simple, simple um, way to describe. And then once you start getting to that, then you can start to make more distinctions from there. But I mean, that's like putting you in the top one percent almost of you know drinkers around the country, yet alone wine drinkers. That if you can define those four things, you can actually figure out what you want to drink. Yeah, and I think it's not that hard. You know if you want white, red, rosé, or sparkling, you know how much you want to pay, and then it's just the body, and if you want to be fruit-forward or earthy. And it could be a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, why I really got into to wine and, and to being a, a sommelier um, is those some of those experiences that I had when I was a kid um, eating out with mom, and then eventually when I, when I got my own place, when I went to school, having friends over and wanting to... To replicate the, that hospitality experience and um, really what I think a sommelier does is uses their knowledge and love of wine to create great moments for people, to create good hospitality for people, to create a special time in someone's life and that's what, that's what I really enjoyed. You know, I know you were in the kitchen for a while. Yeah. Uh, I, I loved food before I loved wine and one of the things, what I really loved about food was cooking for my friends. I cooked for my mom a lot, um, especially after she got into this really bad accident. Uh, I loved cooking and then like sitting, like serving someone and sitting down and enjoying it with them. When I, when I worked in a kitchen, I hated it because I would cook and I would never be able to see someone enjoying like oh my god did they like it did they not like it what did they <laughs> you think? wait for the plate to yeah. come back and see exactly. whether or not it's uh, you know been cleaned. Uh, not not that what i was really doing was you know it was like mostly prep but yeah. but still if i had made it up to the point where i was on the line or something you know that requires real hard work and talent uh i still don't think i would have been as fulfilled as being in the front of house when you can see the feedback you can make sure that everyone is having a good time you can see people enjoying themselves and and having these really cool moments in their lives yeah well i mean you were saying you went to nyu for undergrad and something percolated there um because you didn't initially go to the food studies program. Um, you didn't initially think you were going to go abroad and study in Madrid and Florence and, you know, bound about Italy. Uh, is that when you not only learned about food, wine, but hospitality? Uh, that, that's so true. Uh, I, so I grew up in Queens um, and then went to... NYU, and when you grow up in Queens, you're you know you're part at least where I came from in Queens. It it feels very much like you're from Queens and you're not part of the city. So I had no idea what was in store for me once I got to NYU, and how much I, my my love of food would really would really blossom. Uh, I really thought that I wanted to be a lawyer and then go into politics. I was like, man, it sucks being poor. I'm going to make so much money to be a lawyer, <laughs> and then I can use this money to to do something good. Because I in, in high school and I. I'd, I'd done a lot of volunteering and I found that to be really really satisfying it's like all right I'm gonna make lots of money stop being poor and then do something really good with the world um uh I still have this really strong desire to to give back and we're we're constantly um in fact after this I'm I'm going to a a charity event but uh we're, we're doing a lot of that but I had, I realized at, at school that I had no desire to be a lawyer whatsoever, um, and I'd found I found myself writing all my papers, whether it was for a literature class or econ class, whatever it was, about food. And I found this food studies program 
which was not my major. And I had taken all these electives in food studies and spent all of my time on the electives and none of my time on the important core classes of my major. And something clicked and said, I, I need to surround myself by food. Yeah. So in food studies, is there a focus? I mean, you didn't diverge right towards wine at, at the onset. That's right. So food studies, uh, it's such a fun program and I I feel a little bit uh, guilty about how much fun I had with it because it's really, you're reading all the books that I would be reading, you know, if uh, in a cafe or on the beach, like it's, it's like the omnivore's dilemma and, uh, supersize me and that's the, the McDonald's book. Um, like all these really interesting, like state of how we eat and what are the factors that affect, um, what we eat and, and who's like, who's are the important players in that? I mean, that's all the sociopolitical stuff that you were hoping to get fulfilled from by being a lawyer that, you know, I think people gloss over that food, can also be food systems is food systems first and foremost that's true and that and that program the food studies program is becoming even more and more food systems oriented so it was, yeah it was really the sociology of of food and and i love that um but i don't think it gave me a ton of real skills to uh to be in the restaurant industry so if you want to be in the restaurant industry don't do the food studies program at nyu yeah be in the restaurant industry yeah, i mean you, you worked at italian wine merchants um, how did you parlay yourself tasting at Union you know, Square Wines to a job at a wine store? Oh, I, I offered to work for free. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that helps. Um, yeah, I walked most in, time that helps. Most time yeah. that helps. I, I walked into Italian wine merchants. Uh, I had just gotten back from studying in Italy, and I bought a bottle of wine. I was with my best friend. I was like, man, I loved this experience. This was like, this is the greatest store. I'd never been in here. This was awesome. And he, he said, why don't you ask if... You know, you, you keep talking about like wanting to work in wine and, and you know, you don't want to work in, in the kitchen and, and why, don't, why don't you ask them for a job? And I found the manager, I walked up, I said, I've never worked in a wine store, I've taken a couple of wine classes, I'd be happy to work for you for free, I'm still in college. Um, so that was a nice luxury to be able to do that. But, uh, you know, at the expense of increased student loan debt, but yeah. uh, it, was, it, it, it ended up working out all right. I mean, but how long were you lifting boxes before you lifted a glass to your lips? At a time, wine merchants. Yeah. Oh, they were so great about uh, about opening up a ton of wine, and pretty much right away, I started uh, working as a sommelier and bartender for their private events, and they do these incredible private events yeah, in the, the space back. Space and back is killer. It's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. And there's the chef there right now. His name is Kevin Sippel. He could run any Italian restaurant in the city right now and do a great job at it. He's an incredibly talented chef. Um, at the end of the night, we'd be left with bottles of like. Bartolo Mascarello and Jacosa and Paolo Bay, like all of these great, incredible producers. And, you know, I was uh, ba- barely of age to drink and <laughs> bringing these like truly epic wines home to my dorm room. Yeah. Um, and so that was really fun. So you weren't throwing keggers, you were throwing corkers? I don't know what to call those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, um, I'll leave that yeah, one. So from that uh, International Wine Center, which is an awesome place for wine education here in Manhattan. That's right. So International Wine Center, um, it's uh, a wine school uh, on 7th Avenue and 29th Street. And um, I had taken a class at NYU called Beverages, which was taught by Linda Lowry, who's the president of the International Wine Center. And it approximates their intermediate class. 
And after the class, she had offered that I do a teacher's assistant for her advanced class, which was great because I really wanted to continue my my wine studies. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, they do something really tricky at NYU, though. They make you take that class at 10 in the morning. So... <laughs> So that everyone has class after, and no one's really going after. That, but, that's smart. Uh, but so, so I did the the advanced class, and I and I absolutely loved it. I was with people who were in the industry, who were uh, much older than me. Um, and then their their top level class is called diploma, and I so badly wanted to do the diploma class, but it was several thousands of dollars and couldn't afford it. Um, but what they offered me was if I were to work at the wine center, I could do the diploma class for free. So I left Italian wine merchants and worked at the wine center. Um, that was a busy year. I was also an RA and doing master's level classes in uh, food studies with a full course load. So, um, and I worked at the gym. It's a busy <laughs> year. I didn't have the typical college. Yeah, but at the same time, itis. don't you wish you were that age again when you can do all that at once? And even though you feel exhausted, not you don't feel the same kind of exhausted as now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're actually going to take a quick break, and um, we're going to taste some wine. Uh, there's some beautiful bottles here waiting for us to sip. You've been listening to uh, The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. All of us at Cane Vineyard and Winery are proud to support Heritage Radio Network and the growing movement to change the way we eat and think about our planet. For more information, go to keep5.com. Back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Joe Campanelli, uh, 28-year-old Psalm. I mean, it's it's not old in the Psalm world. It's very, very young. Uh, you know, I, I find that all of my friends, uh, top Somalis in the city, are are kind of about my age. It's it's becoming a younger and younger profession. Yeah, talk about young. 23. What was your profession? So just after, uh, I know what you're implying here. You want me to talk about Bobo? <laughs> Leading yeah. a little bit. Uh, uh, so just after my 23rd birthday, I got hired as a sommelier at, at Bobo Restaurant. It's a killer restaurant, obviously very, very famous and owned by Mario Batali and Joe Vassianich, um down in, in the West Village. Um, I, I feel like, honestly, I feel like I get too much play off of that. I wasn't there very long. Yeah. Uh, it was just like not too long after I started, I got the opportunity to open up our... Our, our first restaurant um, but it was in that short time I, I it was an amazing experience and it, uh, I, I learned a ton it's a yeah. great place uh, your first restaurant now there are how many there's one opening up soon there's one opening up soon okay so now we have um, two restaurants Delanima and Lertuzzi uh, both in the West Village and then right next to Delanima we have a, a wine bar called Anfora which uh, I spend way too much time at. <laughs> and, uh, you probably don't think it's way too much time for a patron to be there all the time, but I spend way too much time there. It's awesome. It's just fantastic. 
There's nothing wrong with being a regular. We love regulars. Yeah. <laughs> being in the restaurant industry has made me appreciate uh, what being a regular means. Uh, I, you know, I was never a regular at any restaurant before. You know, before actually before opening up our restaurants, and now going back to somewhere and seeing the same faces and really feeling welcomed back and, and understanding a place, I, I realize how special that is. Uh, Love regulars. Yeah. Come back all the time. Um, and and uh, we, uh, we're opening up a new restaurant. Um, it's going to be called La Picho. And it's going to be opening up in a few months, probably early fall. Yeah. And uh, down on the Bowery, which when I got to NYU, got the Bowery, I still knew had the Bowery had this reputation of being a really scary, dangerous place. So I remember my heart beating faster when seeing the word Bowery and walking across the street and, and you know my step picking up a little bit. Um, probably that wasn't that justified back then because it was already <laughs> starting to change. But yeah, it, it still it, was a little, yeah, still a little that and like Tompkins Square Park. Oh, um, yeah. Just seeing the conversion of those two areas are yeah. kind of crazy to me. Tompkins Square, one of the like five parks in the city that were called Needle Park. Yeah, yeah. Like, meet me at Needle Park. Which one? There's so <laughs> many Needle Parks. I know them all. So you got the Bowery going, um, but it was 2007. You started Del Anima, and all these are based in Italian heritage. Uh, they have they have an Italian breed to them. But, and I also want to say, your chef partner, Gabe Thompson, is one of the best Italian chefs in the city. Oh, I, I could not agree more. Yeah. I don't think we can can do anything that we do without without Gabe and uh, and also our business partner um, August, who is the who's my boss at Italian Wine Merchants. Uh, yeah, and uh, actually Gabe's wife as well. She's the pastry chef, but she she's the great communicator. She can do anything. Yeah. If we lost a chef de cuisine, a GM, or a pastry chef tomorrow at any of our restaurants, she could jump in and do. We it. should do a whole show about building a team because that core. Um, and you guys call yourself what Epicurean. Epicurean management. Yeah, is building a, a team is so yeah. overlooked and so important in the restaurant industry. Yeah. And then there's, I mean, I God, I wish I can. I feel like it would be like the Academy Awards where you're just thanking too many people. But <laughs> we'll like, just start playing the music. Ke- Kevin Gary, who's our general manager, who's our uh, director of operations, and Ron Levine, who's the president of Epicurean, they're like completely invaluable to everything we do, and they they've brought a lot of experience that that I didn't have, and so I've learned a lot from them as well. Yeah, well. We're going to start tasting okay. wines and still talk about all the restaurants because I go to N4 um, because it is a wine term, but it's also an absurd collection of wines. What does N4 mean? And don't we have an N4 here? Oh, yeah. Let's, yeah, let's, let's start let's, tasting let's, N4 yeah. wine. Um, so Anfora was the the name was actually inspired by uh, a winemaker, uh, Jasko Grovner from uh, from Friuli up in northeastern Italy. He took a trip to Georgia. Um, the country, not the state <laughs> of Georgia. And he found that the wines there were being made in amphora, which are terracotta clay pots buried in the ground. And they've been made that way for over 8,000 years, consecutive vintages. Um, and he was really inspired. He was already considered one of the best winemakers in Italy, um, especially white winemakers. And he was inspired to change his entire production and make wine only in amphora clay pots. So I think that what he did was extremely brave. He, 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 he changed everything that he'd been doing, even though it was proving to be incredibly successful because of something that he really believed in. So the first wine that we're tasting, we actually pour by the glass at Amphora, and it is an Amphora-aged wine, but from Georgia. Um, and the grape here is called Chinuri, which is pretty obscure, yeah. even in Georgian terms. Um, and I actually visited this winemaker. He, uh, he has five 
and four clay pots. He's a he's a farmer by all stretch of the imagination, and uh, he only grows chinori. Half of it he does it with skin contact. Half of it does it without. This one has some skin contact, so you see it's a little deeper golden color. It's a lot of savory notes. It's kind of tannic. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I taste the earthiness, but when people hear the word earthy, I think they get so scared shitless. Oh, see, I cursed. Um, they get so scared shitless that they think it's going to taste like mushrooms or leaves. But earthy, I think, better described as savory in this one mm-hmm. because, you know, then you instantly think of pairing. This is a beautiful wine to drink alone during the summer, but um, it definitely goes well with what? And I'm leaving it blank for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's super savory. You know, anytime you have a an, an, uh, skin macerated white wine, <clears throat> which you might hear uh, referred to as an orange wine, um, you get some of the tannins from the skin. So tannins do really well with anytime you have protein. So this is a white wine that you could really even go into some of your more traditional red wine dishes, like especially going to pork and duck yeah. and start getting even a little bit further into into the meat component. Ooh, yeah, um, that's a good like little butteriness. A little butteriness. Yeah. If you have like, in the, you know, in the summer I really like to do like room temperature food or cold food even, yeah. if you're having people over. So like, um, um, if you were to do like steak and slice it up and like let it be cold and have like an arugula salad or something with it or, or, or roasted potatoes, um, I think that this is a white wine that would be that would be nice kind of with that with that room temperature yeah. steak. But you also like playing with temps because uh, one of your favorite white wines you serve at Red Wine Temp. That's right. Uh, this one actually. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. this this is the no, one. So, so a, a yeah. trademark of all of our lists is that I, I really love to have a white wine served at cellar temp. Um, and that's always going to be a white wine that's made with skin contact, that's made in the style of a red wine, and then a red wine that's served chilled. Um, I, I like drinking chilled red wine also. It yeah. has to be something that's really fresh and young and fruit forward, um, but I always love that. Cool. And I think we actually have one here that we might give a shot. Uh, we have, yeah, we have red wine. Yeah. yeah. Can taste some red wine. But, um, just commenting on the with, contact, uh, with skin contact sticker that's yeah. on this bottle. That's classy. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. you know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty classy. <laughs> uh, so with skin contact, you know, all white wines used to be made with skin contact um, and making fresh, clean, clear, crisp, fruit forward white wines is somewhat of a modern invention for most of the world. So um, they're really making wine pretty similar to how it was made 6,000 years ago. So you know how you had that set of four questions that know or asked and answered um what would you consider that first wine that wouldn't god that wouldn't fit into any of them <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh if you were to go to the first yeah go let's pour this one no. um that that wine in terms of color uh i'd say an orange wine um uh full medium or light bodied probably medium bodied uh fruit forward or earthy i guess you'd say savory or earthy and then the price it's so reasonably priced it's like i mean it's 42 44 dollars on the list um uh and i think we pour it for like 11 or 12 dollars yeah. or something like that so it's uh, a really approachable approachably priced wine and the other reason we like to have these orange wines by the glass is so that people who haven't had them can at least try them to see if it's something you like because it's it's honestly not for everyone and not for every situation yeah. you kind of have to be in the mood for this is, I think, for everyone in most situations. Uh, we're also pouring this by the glass at Amphora. This is the Albert Boxler Riesling from Old Vines, uh, 2007. Um, you know, there's uh, a couple people are participating in the summer of Riesling this summer. I think that, that Paul Greco is doing such great work. I, I think I'm, I think it's so awesome the way he's gone behind this grape. Um, it's definitely a Somalia's favorite. I hope that uh, that the 
that China never finds out about how good <laughs> Riesling is with their food and drives up the prices because, oh my God, Riesling is so good with Chinese food. Yeah. <laughs> um, Riesling. I, I think I used to always have that hold up that the lanolin, the almost gasoline smell, but then the sweetness, everything, because it can be dry, it can be off dry, there can be sweet Rieslings. There's, there's such a breath of Riesling. And I think it was defined one way for so long that... You know, having these kind of wines shows that it has so much versatility, too. That's right. This is a, uh, a pretty dry Riesling, not the driest. But, I mean, you see drier and drier, even in regions where it's typically, you know, it's typical to make a, a sweet Riesling, um, like in the Mosul Valley. Um, and they're, they're just so versatile. Uh, I think it's like a, it's a trick of a smalley to put to bring out a Riesling because they're they're undervalued. And because of the, the acidity, they're super, super versatile. Yeah. So... Let me ask you a question about tasting, because that is an intimidating part for me still. Uh, Knowing people in the wine industry, um, I don't feel like I have the knowledge to even go through the process sometimes. How do you taste a wine? There's the swirl, there's the smell, there's this sound, which I'm going to attempt not to dribble all over myself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean... It depends on on the situation. Uh, If I was on a date, I would not make that sound. (laughs) Uh, But if I was sitting for a Master of Wine exam, I'd probably be making a lot of that sound because what you're doing is you're sucking in uh, air and you're bringing the the aromas through your retronasal cavity and that's really where your sense of smell conveys the the flavors to the brain. And I love things like retronasal cavity. (laughs) That volatizing the esters wine terms are also intimidating but gorgeous once you get them down and understand what they mean but so would you swirl a wine would you smell a wine and then taste a wine is there a progression through all or is there a different way to taste different wines i mean it depends for me it really depends on the on the situation and the scenario uh if i was just just to enjoy wine i'd still swirl it i would swirl it because it really helps the aromas uh come out be a lot more aromatic Uh, but if i was really analyzing the wine which you know, if it's a, a social situation, I'm probably not paying as close attention to to the wine because you want to enjoy it. And the point of wine is for it to be enjoyed. That's its number one purpose in life. Um, but if I, if I was really analyzing it, I would look very closely at the color. The color tells you a lot from, you know, the age. Uh, it could tell you the age. Maybe it can hint at the oak aging. Um, uh, it could tell you a lot of different things. Even the climate, if you see green, green flecks in a white wine, you might think it, it could be from a cooler climate. Uh, then I would pay a lot of attention to the nose. I would say, is it clean? Is it dirty? Is it off? Is it fruit forward? Is it earthy? The, uh, the state of the fruit on the nose can tell you if it was from a warm climate, if it's really, really ripe fruit, or cool climate, if you have some vegetal kind of characters. Um, if it's oaked, you can tell a lot. You really the, the nose tells you a lot more, which is why you do that retronasal slurpy slurpy thing, so that you can get even more of, the, of those flavors on your nose. And then on the palate, I think the, the main thing that, that I would do, you know, if it was uh, a social setting or, or, you know, a master of wine exam, I just slow down and like let that wine go all over, you know, all over your palate. Um, I think slowing down, paying a little bit more attention to it, is the best trick you can do for for a wine tasting, and not overthinking it, um, but but also not just knocking it back. Though there are times for knocking. Yeah, it Yeah, and this one is definitely one of those knock it back kind of wines. Oh yeah. So I just got back from Greece. Is oh, this smuggled no sulfide? This is not a smuggled <laughs> no. This is this is uh, imported and distributed uh, through. Out, I believe the Greater United States, uh, Kiriani Rose from uh, from Greece. 
um, from all the way up to northern Greece, a grape called Xenomavro, which makes amazing Barolo-like, earthy, savory red wines. And uh, wherever I went in Greece and I asked winemakers, you know, this is a, we've been pouring this for at Anfora for a while. And I said, hey, guys, I've been pouring the Kiriani Akakis Rosé. Um, and they're like, everyone pretty much said that's like the best rosé in Greece. But I, I found the quality of the wines to be super high, but especially loved the, the rosés. And then the white wines from Santorini are ridiculous. They're, they're incredible. So growing up in Queens and you grew up in Forest Hills, did you go to Astoria? Did you eat at Greek restaurants? And did they have these kind of rosés then? Oh, wow. I'm so sorry to say that, that Forest Hills was really provincial for me. We, we didn't travel far and we <laughs> never went to Astoria and never, I didn't, I didn't understand what a great bounty of, of, you know, different cuisines Queens is, um, from Astoria and Jackson Heights and Sunnyside and all over, um, until getting out of Queens and going to, and living in Manhattan and then rediscovering Queens from a different perspective. Yeah. Um. Yeah, this Kiriani Rosé. Do you like this? It's it's, it's going to be on my summer list. Yeah. It's going to be on my winter list. It's going to be on my annual. See, you know, in the in the spring, we get all these emails from our distributors. It's rosé time, and people start drinking rosé, and that's for rosé. Uh, I drink rosé all year round. I don't understand. If you can if you drink a white wine in the middle of the winter, why can't you drink a rosé? It's They're so good, and they're so versatile. And if you're grilling, if you have like a barbecue Rosé is the best because it's it can go with with anything. Uh, Rosé and bubbles. Well, what other oh, bubbles? That's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> what kind of wine preconceptions are you trying to break down? Kind of like that uh, about you know what to drink when and also you know what to pair with what. Uh, I mean, the, ugh, there's so many preconceptions, but. Um, I think a lot of people have been doing really good work about breaking down the preconceptions. I mean, the biggest one is that, that, you know, that wine has to be something that's really special and revered and, you know, isn't for everyone. I think that, you know, wine can be the purpose, like I said before, the purpose of wine is to make your life better and more happy and more enjoyable. So, um, if you take the seriousness out of it and the pretension out of it, um, which, which again, I really think that's been going on. Like you can just have fun with it, and and that's the point. Um, that's the point. Drink wines that you really like and have fun with them, and, and visit and your life those will be places better. too. Oh my god, visit those places. That's the greatest, the greatest trip. I mean, the producers are so happy to welcome you. Um, which leads us into our next wine. Uh, it's an Etna Rosso, and I, I was lucky enough to go to Sicily last year and experience uh, the living creature that is Mount Etna um, and Norello Mascalesi's and. How important is it for you to visit the place, you know, have that terroir experience? Uh, I try to make the case to my business partners that it's so important <laughs> that I go visit these places, especially the islands that make wine, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> which which <laughs> islands? Uh, well, I just got back from Santorini, so that was, that was amazing. Um, but, you know, I really do think that... that visiting the place gives you a greater understanding a much greater understanding of who's making wine how they're making wine what are the factors that are that are affecting the way the wines taste um and when you can tell a guest about about that and give them the full story the full picture about it uh granted this has to be a guest who's interested because some people aren't (laughs) interested and that's okay as well um then 
then you're then you're uh, really enriching their experience. And and as I said before, the point of the sommelier is just to provide hospitality through wine knowledge. And if like if having a little bit more wine knowledge is going to help you and make the guests have a greater time, then then that's awesome. But we're uh, we're so we're on Mount Etna, so the active volcano in Sicily, the largest active volcano in Europe right now. Um, and I think Sicily is the most exciting place in Italy for winemaking right now. There are a ton of native grapes. There are um, a lot of producers who are doing really exciting winemaking, natural winemaking, um, like Ariana Occhipinti, who is... Herfurpados, uh, yeah. Herfurpados, incredible. Um, uh, I meant to bring it, actually. forgot it. But uh, uh, Ariana Occhipinti is at all of, our, all of our restaurants. So you have exciting winemakers who are d- making wine in a natural style, who are making balanced wines from native grapes. And that's just so exciting. Um, Can you actually explain the importance of organic, bio-dye, biodynamic, and natural in winemaking? Quickly, because this is like, uh, you're giving the best, like... uh, what are those called? Those chat books where you don't want to read the whole book and you just want to, <laughs> yeah, cliff notes for for people that are interested in wines right now. Right. Sure. I mean, if we were talking pre-industrial revolution, none of those terms existed. Um, when the industrial rev- revolution happened, people found that working in the fields was no longer profitable. I mean, I don't think it ever was, you know, a great a great way to make a living. But they found that they can make more money working in factories, so they left the fields in uh, masses. And the people who were left working in the fields had to uh, tend the fields, tend the vines um, with uh, with less manpower. So they also quickly were able to create uh, machines and chemicals to help them speed those things along. Um, uh, fast forward to to today. I mean, there's a movement to go back to the way that that things were made before all of this all of this modern technology. Um, and there are producers who want to make wine without chemicals at all, who want to make wine with the minimal intervention. Um, you know, the, what's really crazy is that if you look at the back of a wine label, it, there are no ingredients, but there's, there are hundreds of approved ingredients that you're allowed to add to manipulate wine. So when you say that a wine is natural, um, it's not a term that can be certified like organic and biodynamic. You can get a certification, say that this, according to some board, is officially certified. But it's, it implies a wine that has fewer and fewer of those added ingredients that are allowed to be added, whether it's enzymes or or acids or alcohols or, or anything, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. There's, there's all sorts of things that you're allowed to add and ways that you can manipulate wine. So wines are made in a natural way, are made in uh, the most hands-off style. Yeah, and when you taste a natural wine, you know all those things you were just mentioning, enzymes and fungi, um, all those notes, all those flavors, they can happen naturally. And, you know, the manipulation, I think, loses whatever inherent qualities the wine should have. I mean, you're so right. Everything that you need to make wine exists on the grape. Uh, wine was made long before, you know, before any of these chemicals are allowed to be added to wine or, or ever invented. Um, and for me, what's really exciting 
is when a wine is really specific. Um, that's why I, re- I really like wines like this, this Calabretta at Neroso, because it has this earthy volcanic character. Um, it, it, it just reminds me so much of Mount Etna. Um, and even if I've never been to Mount Etna, it's a wine that's so specific to that place that it can't be made anywhere else in the entire world. Um, if you were, there are ways that you can manipulate wine so that they can taste very, very similar. They can be made anywhere. Um, and this isn't one of them. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been there and it brings me back the instant you smell it and sip it. Like you said, the volcanic soils, the slight leatheriness, a little bit of that towards violet almost that come on through, you know, it's that funny recall that you have. It's not like I drank wine when yeah. uh, I was a little kid eating those kind of candies, but this just tastes like you know, your grandmother, you know, coming down in her pedalinos, handing over this crazy bottle of wine that you get to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think you're totally right on that. You know, we both live, we live in New York City and use all the social media and we're broadcasting out to people right now. And I think that um, with, with wine, you have an opportunity to connect with someone on the other side of the world. And if they're not manipulating the product at all, and they're making a really true and real and honest product, it brings you closer to that person and to their, their hard work. Someone on the other side of the world on an active volcano that could erupt at any moment 12 <laughs> years ago, like picked these grapes. And because they, because they did it in a really natural way, um, you can really taste that place. And I think in a way, kind of connect with those people. Well, I think a lot of people can come connect with you at Del Anima, their 2C and four and the new one and La Picho, the new one, La Picho, and coming gonna be coming soon. Crazy wine list there too. Uh, crazy! Oh my God, crazy yeah. wines all the time. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, there'll be a really good wine list. Fantastic! I had no doubt. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for being on. Um, and what a tasting to do. Now I understand why they do tastings at 10 a.m. at NYU. <laughs> very, very smart. And I'm going to go eat a pizza at Roberto's now. <laughs> Excellent. Joe Campanelli. Thank you so much. Visit one of his many restaurants, and there will always be more to come. Drink plenty of wine. What are you drinking tonight? Uh, what am I drinking tonight? I'm probably going to drink more of that, that Greek rosé. That goes down easy. Yeah, check out that bottle. It's beautiful. But you've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Durkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Salud. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.